Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker. I am an author, a speaker, and the professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. But what I really like doing is having geeky conversations with people about all kinds of things. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members of IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. These are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. Last week, we dove into Hell, Gehenna, and Sheol. So I suppose my mind is somewhat pondering the spiritual realm, which meant that this week I gravitated towards a roundtable talk between Dr. Yeshaya Gruber and Dr. Jack Levison. The talk was called Spirit and Man in Ancient Judaism. Dr. Levison is a Hebrew Bible professor at Southern Methodist University. He is a prolific author and a blogger on topics ranging from U.S. immigration policy to speaking in tongues. This conversation focused primarily on Dr. Levison's book, A Boundless God, The Spirit According to the Old Testament. If we are going to spend this whole conversation talking about ruach or spirit, we should start with the question, what is Ruah? Lean in and enjoy the conversation. The, the million dollar question is what is spirit? And um, you know, when I, when I start teaching, what I usually start is with the ambiguity of the word Ruach. Uh, and immediately we see that spirit with a capital S or spirit with a small s or wind or breath, that none of these actually captures spirit. That ruach, I describe to people in churches or wherever I'm speaking, has very broad shoulders, and no single English word can capture those. So spirit, I would say, um, in the many ways, is the presence of God in our world, but not exclusively in our world. Uh, but it's not the presence of God disembodied. It's the presence of God felt as wind, or it's the presence of God felt as breath, mm. or it's the presence of God felt as the ineffable divine, or it's the presence of God in good people doing justice. And so in some ways, the spirit is, is the presence of God in all things, but it moves from everything from my breathing and recognizing that every breath is a gift of God to people working and laboring so that the world can be uh, a place less plagued by poverty, the, the pouring out of the spirit. Well, given that answer, it's obvious why you write that uh, no English term can convey all of the nuances of the Hebrew Ruach. One thing that you said in your book, um, A Boundless God, right at the beginning is very interesting. You said that about Hebrew words in general, that they're more than just simple concepts, but they're ciphers, they're pointers. They're, you said, keyholes. They let us in glimpse into another reality or open up another reality. What do you mean when you, when you talk about Hebrew words as a cipher rather than just any other word in any other language? 
Well, let's just go to the 17th word of the Hebrew Bible, where the Ruach Elohim is hovering over the face of the deep. Mm-hmm. So there it is. There's the, and so in the New Revised Standard Version, they call it a wind of God or a wind from God was moving. But the New International Version, which is more evangelical, I think uses capital S, Spirit of God was hovering. And so you find yourself saying, well, what actually was hovering over the face of the abyss of the deep, right? And if you look at that word, it takes you to a cosmic movement that goes beyond the individual. It goes beyond the church or the synagogue. It goes beyond all of the institutions we create. So right from the the start, Ruach Elohim is something that goes beyond our constructions and it goes beyond wind and it goes beyond spirit with a capital s something else is happening here that leads us to a deeper world and then of course you look at the word hover and it's the word used in deuteronomy 39 32 of a mother of a mother bird taking care of her young so now you have the question of beyond the masculine and the feminine as well So in the very 17th word of the Hebrew Bible, where you have Ruach Elohim hovering over the face of the deep, you have on the one hand, it it goes beyond our institutions. On the other hand, it goes beyond our gender constructions. It leads to a world that shatters life as we know it, because it's not just spirit with a capital S and it's not just a wind. Uh, The translators have to decide in English, but the Ruach is much deeper and richer and fuller than that. And then the verb hovering suggests something other than masculine, but not entirely feminine. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that I've pinpointed things, but but right away, you you can't stop at the word. You have to look through the word word to a much deeper reality. One of the ideas Levinson focuses on in his book is that there's a lot for Jews and Christians today to learn about the spirit in the Hebrew Bible. One significant lesson is that understanding Ruach properly will actually destroy the dichotomies we formed between male and female, breath and spirit, creation and salvation, learning and inspiration. So how does the Hebrew understanding of Ruach obliterate these dichotomies? A clear example is Ruach as breath. Well, you could say that's Ruach as physical breath, and all the animals have physical breath. And then there's Ruach as spirit, which is life and faith. But of course, when you read the book of Job, Ruach as breath is the source of wisdom. It's not merely breath, it's wisdom. So when breath, when ruach rolls over your tongue in words, they can be wise words. Mm-hmm. And so for people, in, certainly in the wisdom tradition, you don't have, I'm breathing <laughs> over here and now I'm wise over here. The wise person, when the wise, per- wise person is attentive to the breath and cultivates the breath, cultivates the ruach, meditates, with the Ruach, that person becomes wise and the words become wise. So it's not breathing over here and wisdom over here. It's both and in a wise person, in a sage. Another thing is obvious, not so obvious to Christians, but throughout the Hebrew Bible, uh, people who aren't Christian 
have the spirit from you know joseph to the messianic ruler of isaiah 11 all of them none of them is a christian so when you have nearly 400 reference to ruach many of them filling people bezalel on a holy ob building the tabernacle you can't say ruach spirit belongs only to christians so that shatters the jewish and christian possibility so i do go into churches and people will say to me can jews have the spirit and i say you know who else is the question should be who else can have the spirit given <laughs> our biblical text and given our reality so on the one hand you have sort of physical versus spiritual they're both the same in the sage as the sage breathes words of wisdom. You have Jewish and Christian shattered because Jews are full of the spirit. And I say that from a Christian perspective. And, and another of the dichotomies that is so, so misleading is when you talk to Christians, they'll say, well, in the Old Testament, the spirit is intermittent. It comes on people and then it leaves like Samson and that kind of thing but it's never really there permanently but in in the new testament the spirit comes on us permanently and when, when we're when we become christians and the old testament puts the lie to that the hebrew bible has people who are filled with the spirit for a lifetime hmm. and so that dichotomy dies with the hebrew bible another dichotomy that dies with the hebrew bible we'll probably get to this when we talk about the next book is Christians will say, well, the spirit was a force in the Old Testament, but it's a person in the New Testament. And I tried to argue in the Holy Spirit before Christianity, no, the spirit is a person or an agent in the Hebrew Bible. Yes. So that's, that's dichotomy. So all of these kind of dichotomies that prop up Christian superiority when it comes to the Holy Spirit, they vanish if you actually start with the First Testament in the Christian Bible. Ah, I love this. And one of the things I remember ages and ages and ages ago when I was in grad school and I was taking a closer look at the text for the very first time and noticed that the spirit comes upon someone, always like this image of a cloak being draped over someone's shoulders. Well, Dr. Levinson has an interesting way to explain such episodes. And this one story we're going to dive in in this podcast is regarding a story in Numbers 11 with Moses, the Spirit, and 70 elders. Moses is overwhelmed yet again. And God says, bring 70 elders together and I will take from the Spirit that is upon you and I will divide it to them uh, or something like that. And then they have an experience. They go out to the tent and the spirit comes and they, the verb, they, they prophesy, which I actually think does not mean prophetic uh, frenzy. I think it means they had uh, an experience akin to Sinai, but that doesn't matter. As a fun quick aside, Dr. Levison wrote an article called The Case of the Ecstatic Elders, in which he argues against the commentators who say that the elders fell into a prophetic frenzy. Because truth be told, how does a group of elders lying on the ground writhing in a prophetic frenzy actually help Moses? Anyway, Dr. Levinson was talking about how he interprets this passage. So 
there are two verbs in that text, the Hithnave verb, prophesy, but the other one is, I will cause the spirit to rest on you. All the emphasis tends to go on prophesying and then people turn immediately to Saul, how he, you know, he writhed with the company of prophets. So they all say that in Numbers 11, what happened to the elders, they went into some prophetic frenzy. But very people pay attention to the fact that God says, I will cause my spirit to rest upon them. And that's the verb used of the Messianic ruler in Isaiah 11, who has wisdom and knowledge and fear of God. So I put emphasis as well on that, and I suggest that the elders are actually helping Moses to adjudicate the people. And then the elders are described with the same word that's used in Exodus 24 of uh, the experience on Sinai. I can't remember the details. But I tie it to the experience on Mount Sinai where Moses goes up Mount Sinai with the elders, and I tie it to Isaiah 11 and the resting of the spirit on the Messiah. And so I suggest that what happens in the prophesying in Numbers 11 is not, in fact, a prophetic frenzy, but a visionary experience akin to Exodus 24 that gives them the wisdom to rule the people alongside Moses. And that's how God gives Moses help, not by having them flail on the ground. So for right. me, prophetic has a really strong intellectual, intelligent component. Mm -hmm. What you have is a reference to Ruach on Moses, given to the elders, and they prophesy. But it's, it's never entirely clear whose Ruach that is. I guess it's God's Ruach that's been on Moses, giving them him the charisma of leadership. But it's not entirely clear and it's certainly not clear there what prophesying means and then the episode ends two other people who didn't go to the camp eldad and medad they also prophesy and josh joshua is appalled moses make them stop make them stop and moses says it's okay would that all israel were prophets and the scene ends sounds like a great scene about the spirit and in any introductory book on the spirit that chapter is going to be there and then you have this very strange thing that a wind comes from the east and drops quail. What is it? What is it, Yeshaya? Waist deep. And the interesting thing is in English translation, it says a wind of the Lord from the east. Right. That's right. a ruach from the Lord. So in our own world, our own kind of dichotomies, what happened with Moses and the elders is the spirit, and what happened with the quail is the wind. But the way the text is written, the spirit or the ruach on Moses is somewhat ambiguous. It could be simply his charisma is given to the elders, whereas the wind from the east is explicit. The Ruach from the Lord brought the quail, which topples everything, our spiritual and our physical. It's the wind spirit that is actually the provision of God. And what happens with the elders, we're never quite sure. Hmm. And so, again, we want to we identify the spiritual. Is it speaking in tongues? Is it fruits of the spirit? Is it wisdom? But Numbers 11 says, oh, no, when God provides for people who are hungry with a ruach from the Lord, it looks like a wind, but it's really God's very presence.
I love it when people point out dichotomies we've taken for granted and ask us to reconsider them. I often puzzle over what it means when the Spirit comes on someone. What does it look like? I know what we think of modern day, but how did people in the ancient world understand the phrase? After all, a prophet was often a spokesperson for the divine. Their role in the ancient world was not one of predicting the future. It was speaking on behalf of someone. So that could be someone human or divine. And of course, this is where I tell you, we're not going to answer all the questions we have here, but I would say it would be worth your time to go listen to the whole roundtable talk with Dr. Levison. So you can hear more about his scholarship and his books, especially the book we've been talking about mostly on this podcast episode, which is called A Boundless God, The Spirit According to the Old Testament. One more gem, however, before we go. In this conversation, Dr. Levinson talks about his interaction with people when he talks about ruach or spirit. And he mentions that it would be a grave mistake to identify the presence of the spirit with a lack of conflict. Okay, this needs explaining. Yeah, you know, very often when I do a workshop on the Holy Spirit or something on the Spirit, and I'll ask people, how do you think about the Spirit? And then usually the word will come, a nudge. Or someone might say, speaking in tongues. Um, and Or peace. It, it, Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, talks about, you know, patience, kindness, long-suffering, love, that sort of thing, as the fruits of the Spirit. So I think, at least in the context I'm often a part of, the Spirit comes to be associated with that very gentle, gentle God. It's the gentle third person of the Trinity. And, and then you actually read your Bible, and especially the Hebrew Bible, but it happens in the New Testament too. The Spirit is not gentle. So in the New Testament, for example, the Spirit descends into Jesus in the Gospel of Mark and then immediately casts him into the wilderness. Ekbalo, the word used of casting out demons or oh, pushing wow. your eye out. Blowing him out. Pushes him right out from the beautiful shores of the Jordan River where he's just heard the divine voice and throws him out into the wilderness. In, in many ways, that's truer to the Hebrew Bible than to Christian thought about the Spirit. Because in the Hebrew Bible, this, the Spirit causes people to speak against the status quo, causes people to say things that um, put them at risk. Just last night, I was giving an introduction to my class, and we were talking about prophecies. So we were, we were going through some of these prophecies. And, you know, Isaiah ends up naked, Ezekiel lying on his side, Amos is told to go home, um, Hosea, you know, loses so much of his life. The, the spirit, if the spirit is there, which I believe the spirit is, causes people to move away from the traditional and the comfortable into a world that breaks the status quo. So you think of Joel and the outpouring of the spirit in the book of Joel, where there's, you know, slave women receive the spirit, not just uh, distinguished elders. Um, everyone receives the spirit. Or you think of the spirit in the book of Zechariah, the spirit of compassion that comes upon people who have committed an act of political stabbing of some sort, and it brings forgiveness. These are wrenching experiences. 
And certainly in the Isaiah texts, which is the resting upon texts, or the coming upon texts, you know, the spirit comes upon judges, the spirit comes upon people, or Micaiah ben Imla, who says to the king, if you come back safely, then I'm wrong. These people are at risk. So the spirit puts people at risk. So to think, oh, if I feel peace, it must be the Holy Spirit. It's just the wrong thing to do. If I feel agitated, it must be the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. I think it's sometimes a better one. I sort of run on and jump all around the book. There is so much more to explore in this very rich conversation. Does the spirit fall on individuals or on a whole entire community? What is the spirit's role in revealing truth? In the roundtable talk, they even talked about the Ruach in the vision of Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones. So if you haven't spent an hour listening to the conversation, I highly recommend that you do it now. The conversation is called Spirit and Man in Ancient Judaism and is located under the roundtable talk menu option on our website, israelbiblecenter.com. Or you can just click on the easy link in this episode's show notes. Thank you to Jeremy McDonald from Mason Jar Music for doing an amazing job, as always, editing, mixing, and adding in all the good music. Thank you for hanging out with me and being curious about all things Bible-related.